Well, welcome again, everyone. It's good to see you here on Sunday morning. Uh, we're happy to uh, be with you um, and to be able to worship together uh, and to be able to uh, dive into God's word together. And so, um, as you can see, we're back into my home. So from my home uh, to yours, uh, we're glad to be able to spend this time together uh, diving into God's word and seeing what he has for us. And so um, I'm going to ask that you join us uh, in a word of prayer as we get ready to see uh, what God has for us as we continue our series through the book of Colossians, uh, the lessons that we're learning from house arrest. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you that um, no matter where we are watching or um, what's going on in our lives, that you are with us right now. And we thank you for your love for us. God, I pray that as uh, we dive into your word, that I would decrease and that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us, Lord. We love you. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we are continuing going through the book of Colossians. Last week, uh, Dan did a great job uh, going through uh, part of Colossians 2, 6 through 10 and being able to, to dive into what it means to experience fullness in Christ. And we're going to continue that through Colossians 2. And so if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, uh, our series today, or excuse me, our sermon today uh, is going to be called Changing the Rules. We're going to be in Colossians 2, 11 through 23. So we're going to finish the rest of the chapter. And as we do that, um, I just want to you know, ask a question and see how many of you can relate. Um, have you ever felt like you were playing a game and the rules were such that there was no way for you to win? Now, let me give an example. A couple days ago, um, I was upstairs in our homeschooling room uh, with Shaylin and Elise, and they each had um, two balloons, uh, or sorry, they each had one balloon. And the whole point of the game was that they wanted to uh, make the balloon hit my belly, which apparently is hilarious. Um, I don't know, uh, but it was one of those where they were having a blast, we were having fun, and so they would try to come at me and you could see them try to strategize. So at first, Elise would try to throw a ball, the balloon like lightly, and Shaylin would try to get it really quickly, but um, I mean, <laughs> I would win, and so I'd knock it out, or then they'd try to come running at me, um, and one of them would come on the back side of me, and the other one would come in front and try to distract, and what would I do? I would just knock the balloon out, move it out of the way and so they would laugh and they would be like oh man and they would want to try to win and uh, at one point Elise is like stop stop she, she called it game out instead of timeout which game out is way cuter anyways but uh, she's like game out game out and we stopped and so she said daddy from now on you cannot hit the balloons and I was like wait what that's not even fair like how is that possible for me to win if I can't hit the balloons yet you're going to keep on trying to attack me and it was like I'm like you can't change the rules during the middle of the game so yes I can and so uh you know we changed the rules and um I mean I still won but it's no big deal uh no so this idea of you know changing the rules and it's it's something where when it comes to in our lives maybe it's something where we just feel like you know, we're playing a game in life and it's just really hard for us to win. Um, right now with, with all the different, uh, different things going on across this, the country, but especially within our state of navigating, okay, what are the rules? Do we, do we wear masks? Which places are open? Um, you know, what, just some people wear masks, some people don't. What, how should we feel about that? How do we navigate that? What does social distancing look like? And, and it seems like the rules are changing because we're trying to make sure that people are safe and we're trying to do things um, in a way that is, um, you know, just protecting people who might be uh, more vulnerable and protecting our families. But the idea is that things are changing a lot. And, and what does it look like for us when it feels like 
things are changing so much and the rules are just hard to keep up with. Now, for some of us, we're thinking about the, the pandemic and the rules that go on with that. But for others, there are things where maybe the rules have been we've got our degree in college and it's just there's so much debt that comes from getting a degree that now we don't know how or, or especially this next generation with the millennials and Generation Z as they're coming through, it's, they don't know how they're going to be able to get a job to ever pay off that debt. It's like they're playing a game in which the rules are set up for them to lose. Maybe it's just the politics that happen within an, an office. And so one person works really hard and has been there for a long time and kept their nose to the grindstone and worked and worked and worked, yet someone else knows the boss better and that person who knows the boss better but hasn't been working as long or as hard leapfrogs a hard worker in order to get a better position. Sometimes it feels like we're playing games, our game to, with the rules that we just can't seem to win. And for us and for our purposes today, what we're going to talk about here are, are the fact that when Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and he died a horrible death, but then he was raised to new life, he allowed us to experience a whole new eternal life with him and, and a right relationship with him and um, eternity with the Father. But what he also did is he helped change the rules a little bit of how we live. And so if you're following along on your notes, our main point for today is that we were once bound. We were bound by the rules of a game we couldn't win. But in Jesus, the rules have changed so we cannot lose. We were once bound by rules of a game we couldn't win. But in Jesus, the rules have changed so we cannot lose. Again, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, excuse me, starting in verse 11. And... Here's what it says. If you remember last week, uh, Dan was sharing with us about the idea of the fullness of Christ and how we're able to experience that fullness and that Christ is the head over every authority and to remember that, to remember the moment we first gave our lives to the Lord and how that changed everything. And he did make a reference to uh, how I celebrate on September 20th every single year is Chick-fil-A Salvation Day. Not that Chick-fil-A brings us salvation, be clear, but that we celebrate salvation uh, as our family and with my old church uh, with some friends um, at Chick-fil-A and just be able to eat together September 20th. So eat it in my honor. That'll be great. But here's where we come back in is verse uh, starting in verse 11 and 12. We're going to start here and it says this. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. The first rule change that we experience uh, through Colossians chapter 2 is this idea that we are no longer ruled by flesh because we are now raised to life. We are no longer ruled by flesh because we are now raised to life. And we see this here in this idea that the circumcision that was being discussed is one that is an external something that happens uh, to, for people to be circumcised. And part of, the, um, part of the context was that in this time that there were people who were Jewish, who grew up Jewish, and when a convert, when someone would come to know Jesus that did not come from a Jewish background, so the man was not circumcised, that then they would force him and say, well, now you must be circumcised in order to really be um, one of the, uh, you know, one of the God's faithful, one of God's people. And we see this in Gal Galatians 3. Paul talks about it, but then we also see it here in Colossians. And specifically, we talk about how 
the circumcision in verse 11 talks about circumcision of human hands, that it was a physical task that was done to perform the circumcision. Yet, in that still, as verse 11 says, the whole self was still ruled by the flesh. In other words, we weren't truly circumcised. Our, our hearts weren't truly circumcised. And so the meaning of what Jesus did for us, how he died for us on the cross and was raised to new life to give us eternal life, that that is something that cannot just be an outside or an exterior change, but it has to be an internal change of heart, that we've had our hearts circumcised and the stone around our hearts that be heart-hearted towards the things of God or hard-hearted towards um, following Jesus, whatever it may be, that, that as Ezekiel 36, as God says in Ezekiel 36, that God removes from us our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He has to carve away and to cut away the stone on the external in order to, in order to reach us internally, to reach us beyond skin deep. And so we are no longer ruled by flesh, by our fleshly desires, by the way the flesh tells us to live, by the temptations and the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, as 1 John talks about. We are no longer ruled by that. We were before. That was a game that we could not win because we were ruled by flesh, that we were uh, succumbed to our sinful nature. But in Christ, when he comes and we receive him, we are no longer ruled by flesh. We are raised to new life. And we see the verbiage here of talking about baptism, of being completely, not just the circumcision has to go beyond a physical external circumcision, but it has to be into our hearts and it has to be God really working and cutting that aside. But also we see that paired with the idea of baptism, that when the baptism idea is someone who's fully submerged, who's soaked under the water. That word baptism is the idea of a, a piece of cloth that would be fully submerged in the water in order to dye it a certain color. So it had to be all the way submerged. And so this idea of the baptism symbolizing that we are fully submerged, we are fully dead to our sin, dead to the flesh that we once used to be ruled by. And then we are out of the baptism raised to new life. So the first rule change is this idea that we were once, uh, we were no longer, excuse me, ruled by flesh because now we are raised to life. As we look and continue on, we'll look at rule change number two, which stems from verses 13 through 15. And here's what verse 13 says. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So rule change number two tells us this, that we are no longer dead in our sins because the cross revealed that Jesus wins. We are no longer dead in our sins because the cross revealed that Jesus wins. And there's some beautiful... Um, word pictures that are being um, displayed here, verses 13 through 15. So uh, the first one is just the idea of verse 13, that yes, we were made alive. We were once dead in our sins, but which was a game that we could not win, a rule that we could not win that game of how good we were, because no amount of our goodness could ever cover our sinfulness. And yet, when Jesus made us, or sorry, when Jesus died, God made us alive through him, and he forgave all our sins. Verse 14 gives us this word picture and said, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us and how he took it away from the cross. Now, this is the picture of this legal indebtedness. 
is would be this idea of if you had a debt that you owed and it was completely eradicated and forgiven and taken away. You know, there's an illustration about a, a, a lawyer who um, ended up, was meditating on the scriptures and he decided that there were 17 of his clients that um, he was deciding that he was going to forgive their debt and he was going to write it all out and send a letter to kind of officially and legally um, uh, to kind of write off the debt that they owed because of some services that they had, uh, that the lawyer had provided for them. And so he wrote um, the verses out there and, and kind of the idea of debtedness based on the Bible and how there's a theology of debt being forgiven. And he sent it out uh, via certified mail to 17 of his previous clients. And as the story goes, he found out that he received 16 of those back. He, and the problem was, or what happened was, because it was certified mail, the recipients, those previous clients, saw that the lawyer had sent them a letter, and their assumption was that they, he had come to collect on those debts. And so they did not want to sign for something in order to show that they received the debtedness, the legal debtedness that they had, and then therefore would be forced to pay it. Little did they know that had they just opened up the letter, they would have seen that their debt would have been forgiven. See, when it talks about this in verse 14, that he canceled the charge, kind of the verbiage or the visual we have here is not just canceled the charge and said, you know, it's crossed off. It's this idea of wiped the slate clean. Imagine if there was um, a piece of paper with, with ink and, and it had all the different um, debt that you had. And then... Jesus's blood, what it did is it ended up pouring like red ink that covered all of those words on there that had all the list of your sins and your hurts and your habits and your hangups and your trials and your temptations. And it just completely covered it so that not a word could be seen anymore. That our legal indebtedness to God because of our sin has been wiped clean has been made new, has been completely eradicated, has been canceled, and has been forgiven in the most legal and financial of terms, that the debt is now no longer required of us because Jesus already paid it for us. That we are no longer dead to our sins because the cross reveals that Jesus wins. And that's not the only word picture in this section I want to point out. Verse 15 tells us this, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Again, the cross is important for cleaning us and um, forgiving us of all of our debts of our sin, but it also provides the triumph. And this verbiage, again, that the triumph is, is um, picturing actually goes to this idea of a Roman triumph. It was a, an official um, parade that would happen when a Roman governor would go and he would conquer um, a people group or he would expand the Roman Empire and they would create this incredible spectacle where the Roman would, um, general would come in on a chariot and there would be some of the slaves or the people that he had defeated would be following behind him and the people of Rome would be celebrating and praising him and, and worshiping him for the great deeds that he did and building, or excuse me, expanding the Roman Empire. And it was called a Roman triumph. In fact, if you were to look it up later today, you could look up uh, Rome, Roman triumph arches. And there were certain arches that date back to the 300s or the 70 AD that were the specific arches that the Roman uh, conquering generals would walk under or would have a tr uh, triumph, triumphal parade underneath. And 
The point of that was, verse 15, he said he made a public spectacle of them. He made a big deal of everyone seeing that all the, the enemies that had been defeated, a Roman general would come in and there would be a spectacle that people would look at them and laugh at them and say, you know, that they would miss out on the glory of Rome and that they were conquered and that they were no longer safe. And it would show the triumph that the general had over his enemies. And what the cross reveals to us is that Jesus has triumphed over the enemies of sin and death. That our own sinfulness and, and the sin nature that we have was a game that we could, a rule to a game we could not win. But thanks to Jesus, he's changed the rules so that now when we confess our sins, we still sin all the time. We confess our sins. God is righteous and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. That our righteousness is as filthy rags. But because Jesus died on the cross, because he's able to expand his kingdom, not the Roman Empire, but expand his kingdom, that now death and sin are conquered prisoners, conquered um, villains, enemies, that Jesus parades through and shows that we can have eternal life through him. And that the cross has won that victory. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides us with that victory to be able to know that death has been defeated and that new life can be received through who Jesus is. So the two rule changes so far, the first one is the idea that we are no longer ruled by the flesh because we've been raised to life. Then we look at rule change number two, that we are no longer dead in our sins because the cross revealed that Jesus wins. He's victorious, he's triumphant, and we get to have that victory, not because we fought the battle, but because we have a Lord and Savior who fought it, won it, and has given us the spoils of that victory. But that's not the only ones that we see here. We also see the, uh, the third rule change is this, that we no longer hold on to the shadow because Jesus holds us so we can grow. We no longer hold on to the shadow because Jesus holds us so we can grow. This one doesn't make as much sense just looking at there, so let's, let's look into the scripture together and uh, have it make a little bit more sense to us. Verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Let's take a moment to stop there. See, in the same way that there was a group of people and, and uh, this, this um, theology or this false theology, this heresy of, of this idea of Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the idea, and, and Dan hit on this a little bit last week, but it's the idea that, um, that intellectual knowledge or specific revelation was somehow um, the only way to receive salvation. So we're going to see in a few moments when it talks about, you know, even if an angel were to tell you a certain thing, or if you were to have these special revelations that Jesus, his sacrifice and his death, as we saw early in Colossians 1, he is all supreme. He is all encompassing that everything in or was made in him and through him and for him. And so he doesn't need some special revelation because he is the revelation. He is who came to die on a cross, to be raised to new life and to give us eternal life. And what then happened with this Gnosticism is that what was created was this idea that everything of the mind was good, intellectual, revelation, certain mysteries. We've heard that verse, in, or that, excuse me, that verbiage in verse, uh, chapter 1, that there were these special revelations that only certain people could experience the 
saving grace of Christ. But what that then meant was that the other side is that if the, if the mind and the, the spirit and the intellect was good, then it meant that all things of the body, according to Gnosticism, were seen as bad. And so we're going to dive into that in a couple moments, but there's this dichotomy, this, this, this separation that takes place. And so what then um, Paul is talking about here is that we were once ruled by our flesh, but now he's talking about how there are certain human rules that people experience and try to put upon them. And, and so in here, they're saying how, you know, if you, whatever you eat or what you drink, or whether you go to a certain religious festival or a certain new moon celebration or a certain Sabbath day, there were some that were trying to restrict and to tear people down who love Jesus because they weren't doing the right things. They weren't pursuing the right um, actions or the daily rules. And yet Paul is very specific in which he says that these are now, those things were the shadow of the things to come, that they were a glimpse, a shimmer or, or a glimmer, excuse me, of the fullness of what was supposed to be revealed was Jesus. The Sabbath was an idea of to, to be a shadow, to point us to the importance that we need to rest in God's love and his salvation. That no matter how much work we try to do six days of the week, the seventh day of the week that God called us to rest because he rested, and no matter how hard we may work to try to earn our salvation, we never can. We, instead, we need to rest in his salvation. It's a shadow. It was a, a picture of what was to come. And in fact, that word shadow is in the Greek is the word that we get the word photograph from. It's a picture of something that represents something more full, but it's a picture that points to it. Uh, there was uh, J. Vernon McGee who, wrote, who writes um, a Bible commentary um, throughout the whole Bible, but specifically in this section of Colossians. He shares about how um, he's a pastor in Pasadena, and during World War II, he had performed a wedding ceremony for a uh, you know, young bride and young groom, and shortly thereafter, the, the groom went off to World War II. And in the story, he shares how he would see the bride and, and the bride would um, show everyone a picture of, of her, you know, her newly married groom, groom who's uh, across the world. And he shared that, you know, most people, if you have like a picture in your purse, um, it's kind of like a small size, you know, like a wallet size. But he said, no, this woman, this young bride had a, a large picture that was inside of a purse, the kind that should be hanging up on a wall. But instead what she would do is she would pull it out and she would show the photograph to whoever would look and, and say, look at, look at my husband, isn't he handsome? And look how wonderful he is. And of course, J. Vernon McGee writes uh, in his commentary really briefly, he says, between you and me, uh, his, her husband was a wonderful man. I wouldn't call him handsome, but that's neither here nor there. But then what he talks about is how years later, when the war was ended and her husband was then able to come back, that she, you know, they lived in Pasadena. She went up to Seattle, Washington in order to see him as he came off uh, the boat and be able to um, embrace him. And, and J. Vernon McGee asked the questions this way when thinking about what was it like. She says, he says, now what do you think that she did when she saw him walking off of that gangplank? Do you think that she took out the picture that she'd held, the photograph, and held on to that and looked at that instead when the reality of who the picture was representing was right in front of her? Is it something where she would have looked at this and said, oh, look how this wonderful photo, or does she put the photo, the picture aside in order to embrace the reality and the fullness and the fulfillment of what that picture represents? Because now she's not just looking at a photograph of her husband. She's able to actually embrace her husband in person after not seeing him for a few years. And that picture, that, that, that illustration points us to this idea that 
what we eat and what we drink were things that the people, the Jewish people were called us to be set apart from the world because Jesus was going to, or in order to have a right relationship, we needed to be set apart through our saving grace, through our faith in Jesus Christ. That there was a rest that needed to happen so that it was a picture, it was a photograph, it was, a, it was an idea, it was a shadow of what was to come, of Jesus being the fulfillment of, the, uh, the fulfillment of um, the reality and the fulfillment of what was promised. In fact, in verse 17, when he says, they are a shadow of the things that were to come, the reality, however, is found in Christ. It's showing that there can't be the separation between mind, what was important, and body, but that Jesus came not just as a spirit, but he came bodily, in flesh, as a person, as a human being, fully God and fully man, in order to allow us to, to in order for him to live the perfect life and die a horrible death, but to be raised to new life so we could have eternal life. And so it's a picture, it's a photograph, it's a shadow of what was to come and the fulfillment of which was Jesus. And we continue on in verse 18. He says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. That was the, top, the part of the angel revelation I mentioned earlier that came with Gnosticism. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen, that they are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. He's saying this idea that they think they're so spiritual, but they emphasize the mind, but in so doing, they have an unspiritual mind because they're not able to grasp the fullness of the body of Christ, the fullness that it's not um, mind separated and better than body, but it's Christ who, in fully God and fully bodily human, became our savior for us. He says that they have lost connection with the head, verse 19, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So here's that second part of the verse, or the rule change, excuse me, that we're no longer hold on to the shadow. We don't just hold on to the external things that, that show that we follow Jesus in the same way that the bride wouldn't look at just the photograph when she could hold on to her husband, but instead, Jesus holds us together as the body of Christ so that we can grow, that one another, that we turn to him and we have relationship with him and we have relationship with one another. And in so doing, his whole body, the church, is able to grow because we're not just holding on to external rituals, but instead we're allowing God to internally change us so that we can grow, not the shadow, but the growth. And then lastly, verses uh, 20 through 23, we say this, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not touch, or taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That rule change number four that we talk about here is that we are no longer bound to human rules for life, like do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. But we can choose to create a rule of life. Before I dive into what that means, we again see in verses 20 through 23, the separation that the body in Gnosticism is bad. And so don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, don't do this, don't do that. 
And it's so easy for us as Christians that when we give our lives to the Lord, we start to define ourselves by what we don't do rather than what we do. And some of those things are rightfully so. There are certain, certain things that we should not be doing as we pursue Christ. But if we as a church, as a body of Christ, as a people, are only known for what we are against, rather than what we are for, then we are missing the point. We don't want to be people are just list, that are known for not doing certain things, but instead we want people who are known for doing things like showing mercy and loving compassion and being able to welcome people in no matter where they are, to be able to show them God's love, to be able to model what God's love looks like, to be able to speak the truth and love to one another, to be able to love one another and in so doing be able to show the people on the, who don't know Jesus that he is real by the way that they, we follow his commands and love one another. There are things that we should be known for, for generosity, for service, for ministry, and for missions, and for love. If we are only known as do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, then we're giving into a human or a worldly rules of which to live by, rather than understanding the way that God has created us and formed us to be a light in a dark place. Because if we only follow rules like do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, that is a lot more akin to how the Pharisees were living. That there were certain things that they would do and they would not do and they took pride in the fact that, um, as Luke 18 gives the example of, the, of the, um, the Pharisee who stands on a corner in this parable who says, I'm so glad that I fast and I give a tenth of all my things and I fast twice a week and I'm so glad, God, that you have mercy on me more than that sinner over there. And then Jesus tells the story of the parable, or in that parable, Jesus tells the story of the man and the sinner who says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And Jesus says, the one who just asked for mercy is the one who was left righteous by that, not the one who's had the rules of what he did do or didn't do. So let me be clear. Am I saying that you shouldn't have certain things that you do or don't do? Of course, we, there's certain things we shouldn't do as Christians, and there's certain things that we should do. But our lives should not be dictated by the external rules of do this, do that, do not do this, do not do that. Instead, it's what has Jesus done in our lives and how do we overflow that? How do we allow that to change how we love God? And how do we allow that to change how we love people? And how do we allow that to use us to share who Jesus is with the whole world so more and more people could come to know him? We need to have truth and love. It's not either or, it's both and. But if we are only so focused on being truthful to the point where we aren't loving, well, then we're missing out the gospel and we're more like Pharisees. And if we only focus on love without truth, then we're people who are flippant and we you know, don't value the word of God and we don't value prayer. So we don't want to go to that pendulum because we absolutely value the word of God. We absolutely value prayer. We absolutely value that there is objective truth, things that are right and things that are wrong according to God's word. But we want to be known for people who don't just follow this rule or that rule. Because these rules, as verse 22, they, they have to do with things that are going to be destined to perish with use. That don't eat this, don't drink that. It's like in the end, if you say, hey, don't eat certain meat or whatever it may be. In the end, that meat's just going to perish. Don't drink certain wine or certain whatever. In the end, that, that's going to spoil or that, it's going to go bad. But the idea is that external circumstances, as verse 24 said, or excuse me, external rules that the world may put on us or that we may externally do, they have the appearance of wisdom, but they don't have true humility. They don't stem out of true worship. 
and it's allow, it causes us to have a harsh treatment rather than being able to show one another God's love. And so what do I mean here by we are no longer bound to human rules for life? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. But we can choose to create a rule of life. And a rule of life is something that has um, been around for uh, hundreds of, almost thousands of years. And the word rule, the original idea of the word rule comes from the Latin word, at least the way that we use the word rule, comes from a Latin word which means trellis. And which basically is it's a framework or structure to help enable us continually to pay attention to God. But think of it purely in a, in a um, garden term first, is that a trellis is something that is, uh, creates the structure around which uh, plants that need to grow in vines are able to grow and grow up because the structure is in place to hold the plant, to support it. And it's not like a tomato plant that just falls down if there's no support, but to be able to have a trellis, to be able to have a place in which the, the fruit or the plant is able to grow because of the framework behind it. The rule is a trellis. And so the first trellis, or excuse me, the first rule of life um, was written by Pacomius uh, from the early 300s AD, but then the most popular one that if you've heard of it before, you most likely have heard in the context of uh, St. Benedict and the Benedictine monks, Be Benedictine monks, excuse me, um, and the rule of life that they would live. And they surrounded a rule of life into four different areas. And it's all based out of being able to give and receive the love of God. But we see it played out in these four areas. And this, is, this comes from Pete Scazzaro's um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And so um, I'll, I'll send, I'll be able to put on a, a link um, of where you can go to find that. If you go to palmerado.com slash rule of life, we'll have uh, a little worksheet or something that you could work on if you would like to do that. But what it does is it breaks it down into four areas. Prayer, which includes things like scripture, uh, time of silence and solitude, uh, time of study, and just being able to have a time of prayer. Then it looks into this idea of rest in which you have a Sabbath time. Uh, we do want to have a Sabbath. We just can't look at the Sabbath as that which saves us, right? And so Sabbath is still important. What does it look like to have rest in regards to living simply rather than so overwhelmed with debt that you're always stressed and not experiencing rest? What does it look like to have Sabbath in regards to, or excuse me, um, rest in regards to playing and, and enjoying yourself and do things that you delight in? So that's not just always about work. So in the rest category, things like Sabbath, simplicity, and play. Then you look at work and activity and work in the bottom corner there. Um, and that idea is the idea of, you know, what's the mission that God has called you to? And what areas do you serve him? Whether it's through your work, your physical work at, at a job, whether it's through work you do at home uh, to help the house run or things like that, or whether it's beyond your work, but you serve in a capacity, whether it's through a church or other ministries. And it's part of something bigger that you're able to be a part of. What are the things that you work on versus service and mission? But it also includes maybe taking care of your physical body in order to make sure that you're healthy and getting sleep and eating well and, and taking care of yourself. So those can all fall under the box of work as well. And then lastly, this box right here is the idea of relationships. And that and inside that box can be things like your family, like your family relationships, um, nuclear family as well as, well as extended family, um, your community, your friendships, the people you do life with, and um, even uh, just your own emotional health, your relationship between you and God and relationship with others. And so, again, this creates a structure. And there might be things where you decide for prayer, you say, I'm going um, to pray uh, you know, twice a day, once in the morning, once at night, every single day. Or I'm going to read one chapter of the New Testament, one chapter of the Old Testament every day. 
um, or might be examples like that. Rest might be, I'm gonna take a Sabbath and I'm gonna do work through the other six days of the week so I can have a 24 hour period in which I'm able to just to rest in God, to delight in him and to be able to contemplate his love for me. You look at work and maybe the idea is I'm going to volunteer over and above where I serve or I'm going to make sure that at my home or at my job, wherever I'm working, that I'm doing it all for the glory of God. And then maybe you look at relationships and you think of, okay, I'm going to reach out to a family member and call them once a week. I'm going to check in via text to see how people are doing. Or I'm going to have a, a regular appointment or phone call with an accountability partner or uh, some a small group that I want to be a part of, of, of godly people to do life with. And again, I'm going to include a, a list or a... Um, a link that you can do that and you can kind of work through some of that stuff based on some of Pete Scazzaro's information. It's a, it's, it's a great idea to be able to go through and create a rule of life so that this rule is not just rules like do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, but these rules are how do we create a structure, a trellis in which our life and our walk with God and our love for God begins to grow so that we can become the men and women God's called us to become, that we can bear good fruit and thus complete the joy of Jesus, as we see in John 15, so we could live the life he has for us. Not because we've been bogged down by rules, tell us what to do, what we can't do, but instead because we intentionally create a space to have a rule of life, a way that we structure our lives where God is at the center, where being with him and spending time with him and receiving love and giving love becomes the center of our lives through which the overflow comes into those areas of prayer and rest and work and relationships. And so we can decide to do that. And so, like I said, you can have an opportunity to work on that this week. Um, and what I want to do is I want to take a moment to uh, close us that as you remember that we were once bound by the rules of a game we couldn't win, but in Jesus, the rules have changed so we cannot lose. That now we are no longer bound by our old flesh, but that we are raised to life. We are no longer held to certain rules, but we can choose to create a rule of life. We are no longer dead to our sins because the cross revealed to us that Jesus wins. And that we're able to not just hold on to the shadow of something, the photograph, the picture of it, but instead to take hold of the growth that we can have when we see the real thing of who Jesus is, of who he was, fully God, fully man, and that he came to live a perfect life and he died a horrible death and he was raised to new life so that we could have eternal life. And earlier, um, before our sermon, Susie sang the song, Freedom Reigns. And this idea that um, freedom reigns in this place and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we talked a lot about being bound by certain rules, but we're no longer bound by those rules anymore because we've been set free through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And so as we close our sermon and are getting near the end of our service together, um, we're going to have the opportunity to now partake in communion to remind us that his life, death, and resurrection set us free, that we are no longer bound by the rules of the game that we cannot win. The rules are changing. How do we survive? How do we make it work? But through Jesus, he changed the rules so that we now are in a game in life that we cannot lose. When we trust in him, when we surrender our lives to him, when we confess our sins to him, when we ask to become more like him, and when he works in us and through us in such a way that our lives are 
a photo of who he is. Our lives are examples of a, a debt, um, a paper, a document of debt that has been completely blotted out and wiped clean, that our lives show Jesus as the victor and that we get to experience the victory that he's had for us. So we'll, in a moment, I'm going to ask that we pray, and then you'll be able to take the elements as you feel led. So will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to show us that we are no longer dead in our sins, but that the cross of Christ is what allows us to experience our debts completely forgiven and paid, and we can experience victory over sin and death. So Jesus, as we take the bread and the cup, we take the bread reminding us of the body that was broken, your body that was broken, and that had endured the cross for us. We take the cup that reminds us of the blood that was poured out, that allows us to be completely made clean and pours over the ledger of our debt and wipes it clean so those, debt, those sins are no longer there. We take those elements now, Lord Jesus, as a reminder and as a, as a note of thankfulness for who you are. So we love you, Jesus. Thank you for rescuing us and changing the rules so that now we're in a game we cannot lose when you are the one we turn to. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So please feel free to partake of the bread and the cup as you feel led over the next couple moments. Amen. Thank you all so much for joining us today. And um, again, if you want to, if you need prayer, please don't hesitate to click the live prayer button or to comment or chat uh, that you need prayer. We are here for you. You are prayed for, cared for, and loved. And we hope that you leave this morning in the encouragement that the victory has been won and that your debt has been wiped clean and that you don't need just to look at a photo of Jesus, but you can have a real relationship with the real Christ who really came down and who really loves you. And so may the Lord bless you this week and may he keep you, may make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and may he grant you his peace. God bless you all. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next Sunday morning.